0: Different people have looked through the text, the scriptures, and of course, depending on how you define, is somebody named in the text? Is it the same name? Is it different? You'll develop a range. So when you're trying to figure out how many women are in the Bible, it gets a little complicated. You almost have to start with a range. And so the best ranges that I could find based on my research this week is that there are anywhere between 166 to 205 women that are named in scripture. there are 1,122 to 1,386 total individuals named in Scripture. So, as a percentage, at worst, it is 11.9% of the individuals mentioned in Scripture are women, to, at best, 18.2%. Now, if you take for granted... That roughly throughout all of history, we've probably been right around 50% men and women, right, throughout history. That's an underrepresentation in Scripture of anywhere between 31.8% and 38.1%. So there's a big gap in our texts around actually mentioning women? Because ideally, you'd like it to be about 50-50. That's a representation in the population, right? What happens when we've got vacuums like that in representation? How do you fill those kind of vacancies in conversation? I feel like, and I imagine that this might have been part of the reason why this particular topic was picked is, after a while, it begins to get really hard to find oneself in a text when you aren't mentioned a whole lot. Perhaps if you are somebody who's looking to find people like you in Scripture, and you're female, and you've got basically 11% of Scripture to choose from, after a while, it gets to be slim pickings. And so we fill this vacuum, I think, in a couple different ways. One way that we might fill it is we expect experts to tell us how we should view women in the Bible. People spend their entire lives studying the text, getting PhDs, working really hard to find all these answers. We should listen to them. Well, part of the problem might be is that if you have people who tell you what to believe, and they aren't able to have a dialogue with the people that you're talking about, you can only end up filling the space with one particular type of voice. So, for instance, keep in mind that the Society for Biblical Literature, which is sort of the trade group of every single uh, person who's doing biblical scholarship in America, in their current reports, they say that 24% of biblical scholars are women. that's an underrepresentation it seems and in our denomination the presbyterian church usa 58% of the population of people that attend are women yet only 38% of active pastors are women there's an underrepresentation now i don't want people to be turned off at this point and feel like this is going to be some sort of screed that's going to go one particular direction. I'm just asking you to start to consider what is it like when we start to have conversations about women in the Bible and we already have a big gap in finding women to talk about in the first place in Scripture and now we don't have a lot of women who are entering into the conversation. So the conversation is likely going to go one particular way. And it seems that when you have these kind of disparities, it can be easy to become an echo chamber, right? If you have ten people who all feel the same way about something, they're all going to tend to agree. And if you've got seven out of ten people who are the same, those three people are likely over time going to get drowned out by the seven who are stronger. And so, if this dialogue continues, what happens is you have places where some particular information takes up space. And the one thing I thought a lot about this week, as I was preparing this sermon, is Ephesians 5. Now, for those of you who don't um, haven't looked at that text, it's one where it talks a lot about wives submitting to husbands, and then it goes on to talk about husbands submitting, you know, to the tr- like Christ did to the church. And because I think the way the conversation has gone has been largely one direction and we're clamoring to fill up space of a gap where there aren't a whole lot of women to help us understand how are women doing things in scripture, we start to look at particular passages and we say, well, that's how it has to be. So most of our energy, I think, in Ephesians lands on the very first couple verses of that passage. Wives, submit to your husbands. And that tends to be the narrative that goes on for most of us. But if we let that dialogue just sit, we let it stand on its own because there's no one else to say, I don't know if I understand it that way. We might not spend a whole lot of time looking at the rest of the passage, right? where most of the passage does not talk about that particular section, most of the rest of it is trying to wrestle out, what does it mean for husbands to submit like Christ loved the church? What does that even mean in the first place? Moreover, it doesn't give us the time to think about the culture itself at the time, when Ephesians was written, that perhaps women at that time were considered chattel, no more than possessions to be owned, that even perhaps one should say that a husband should love their wife would have been radical in its day. The writer in Ephesians was trying really hard to thread a needle to say you're in a world that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to you anymore, but you still have to live in it. So how are you going to do it? Well, maybe you ought to remember the freedom that Christ gives us, but don't ignore the fact that you're in a culture that might not agree. And that tends to be a reasonable conversation we could have in 2019 too. So again, we either have a lot of certain voices that are not the same, a lot of men taking up the space about what's happening with women in the Bible. And honestly, this was part of my trepidation of even having this sermon. Because here I am, but I figured we had a deal, and you wanted me to talk about women in the Bible. So we have a lot of men that are telling a particular story about women. And then we're not able to have other information come our way to think about how it might be different than the stories we've heard. Or what we do is we take some of the space, especially in the light of the previous two points, and we cast certain perspectives on the characters we do have in the Bible. I remember growing up hearing stories about being the daughter of Eve, The whole reason why we're in this issue in the first place is because of Eve. Adam was just a fool. And can you imagine what that does as that spirals out and spirals out those stories that one hears about characters in the Bible that they are trying to see who they are? I couldn't imagine trying to find the stories growing up It would help me feel like I was beloved in the text. So it seems we catch ourselves in a difficult circumstance here, right? To talk about women in the Bible means at some point we have to work against what we've been told for centuries up to this point. Because after a while, friends, I fear that all we see in Scripture, and we can take it Further than just women in the Bible, at some point, all we see are the stories and the narratives that have filled the vacuums of what we can't entirely understand. And there's power in that knowledge, and there's power in controlling that narrative. If I can say that every single person who has ever gone through this door is mandated to show up Sunday after Sunday after Sunday and give 10% of their income Sunday after Sunday to church, we would have filled up this entire space. We'd probably be able to fill up a second floor, and we'd have more money than we knew what to do with, right? To be able to own the narrative has power. So, as a result, texts like today, this Acts text, this little four verse story, they don't get examined. Because if we sort of sequester the role of a woman to some corner somewhere, and we don't think about, well, what could women be doing in the scripture? What we might focus on is Apollos. And Apollos is a really interesting character for these four verses. He seems to be, like, ready to go. He's, like, this excited, I almost think, like, the excited, slicked-back megachurch pastor rolling into the, the big city and saying, Hey, let me tell you about Jesus but he doesn't know what he's talking about. He was enthusiastic, but he only knew the baptism of John, writes Luke. And so, a friendly couple pulls our friend Apollos aside, teaches him properly, and then he goes on. The two people who pulled him aside are Priscilla and Aquila. I don't know anybody named Aquila. It's a male name. Priscilla's first, though, in this text. That's unusual. So you have to wonder why is it Priscilla and Aquila, which is really fun to say, seriously. Say it, Priscilla and Aquila sitting in a tree. Priscilla's first in this. And from what we can surmise, it was Priscilla who had the power, Priscilla who had the money, Priscilla who had the resources. In fact, Paul calls Priscilla a fellow laborer in the movement and the work of the church. So Priscilla was not off to the side, No, Priscilla was front and center. Priscilla is called that the same way that folks like Mark are called co-laborers. Timothy is called a a co-laborer. All these other individuals. And so was Priscilla. Luke tells of Priscilla as a type of envoy who might travel with Paul to explain what was going on. She was a pillar of her church. And Priscilla is a teacher. And so I don't think in the end it's Apollos who drives this story. It's Priscilla and Aquila, and Priscilla is at the front of this story. And if we strip out the noise that fills our vacuums of narratives and stories, we begin to see how over and over and over again through Scripture, it is women who drive the story, who drive the plot forward, who are part of God's grand design of this world. It is Rahab who drives the story in Joshua by protecting and hiding the spies before they were to go out and seek the promised land. Had she not done that, the spies would have likely been killed. And so ends the Promised Land Conquest. It is Ruth who came into a family that helps us understand David and his Davidic dynasty, how he gets to become king. And Ruth did things very differently than Rahab. Or Ruth did things very differently than Esther, who we spent a month talking about, who rose to the position of queen, And used that moment to save her people. It is Mary, the mother of Jesus, who nudges Jesus on the very first time to perform a miracle. And in classic annoyed with your mom sense, Jesus is like, what do you want with me? But had it not been for Mary, the water would have not turned to wine at the wedding feast at Cana. And... To the attempted discredit of all the people in the upper room, all the men in the upper room, it's the women who are the first ones to see that Jesus is resurrected and no longer in the tomb and rush to go tell them. Over and over and over again, it is the women in Scripture that turn the text. Salvation depends on these women more than we ever talk about, and you wonder why. Every single one of us here are called by God. The problem too often has been, it's been folks that look like me that are the ones that that's too clearly acknowledged. Ones who don't look like me also are called. And it may be the women in this room who are the ones that will drive this church forward than any more of us. But that doesn't mean that God doesn't call us all. And I think what matters most, friends, is what stories we take with us as we understand who we are. If we take the stories that we have inhabited that diminish other people over time, we won't pay attention to them any longer. And so the question I leave with us today is how are we going to remember the women in the text? How are we going to remember those whose stories are too often sidelined in our lives today? Perhaps if we invited them more towards the center where God is, we invited them to a special place around where God is, we may find that our stories become more rich and more nuanced, and perhaps less inconsistent. We should pay attention to how God calls all of us, each one of us, to be aware when a story wants to fill a vacuum. Because isn't that what Jesus did? Over and over again in the Gospels, what I see is a Savior who brought the people that weren't going to be paid attention to, who are out in the corners, who had to literally have holes punched out of houses to be dropped down, to be healed. And Jesus brings them in and wants to hear their story, and sends them out healed. Because what is it like to be heard? What is it like to know that Jesus cares for you the same way he cares for everybody else who happens to be the slick megachurch pastor who screams it out like Apollos? And the thing that should worry us, perhaps, and should drive us on forward is If we do this to women, who else do we do this to? 50% of us here, probably more, 60% of us here are women. And for whatever reason, we sideline your stories and we don't make them part of the center. Who do we do that to that's not here? Who's afraid to be here? Who doesn't think Jesus cares for their story? I wonder if that person somewhere out in the corner may be the person that our entire faith hinges on. Don't believe all the stories you've heard, dig deeper. Let's bring those people out because there there is where God's beautiful story stays with us. Amen.